everybody, welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. Today we're gonna to start something quite different. I want to share with you some things that I've been enjoying from this book called Solomon Says by Mark Horn. The subtitle is Directives for Young Men, but it's not just for young men, it's for men and women, as Mark himself says in chapter one. This book is for anybody who wants to grow in maturity in Christ. I was so taken with this book. I'd read the preface introduction in the first chapter this afternoon and I immediately went back on Amazon and ordered four more copies for Nicole and Ben and Becky and Abby. We're going to read it together. They don't know that yet, but we're going to. I want to encourage you to consider doing the same thing. Grab a copy and let's work through it together. It's a fantastic book. Let me give you some things that I thought were really fantastic from the preface and the introduction just as we kick off. The preface begins with a great illustration of what it means to grow up as a Christian uh, in maturity in Christ and also as a, a person from uh, childhood to adulthood. Mark likens the process to learning to drive a car. Of course, when you learn to drive a car, you acquire a huge amount of new freedom. You can suddenly go new places. You can go faster. You can take stuff with you. You can, you can't, you're not just waiting for somebody to take you across town. You can drive across town. You can drive across the state. You can go and visit somebody. All these new freedoms that it brings. But, of course, driving a car means that you have immense new responsibilities. If you bump into somebody when you're walking down the sidewalk because you're being a bit careless, you might injure them. If you bump into somebody when you're driving a car because you're being a bit careless, you'll probably kill them. It's really important when you're growing up to realise that the new freedoms that you have come with huge responsibilities. And especially, of course, as Mark is saying, yes, particularly directed at young people, the freedoms that you acquire gradually as you're growing up bring with them tremendous responsibilities because you have an immense capacity to do harm. Now that harm comes about in our lives when we fail to discipline ourselves appropriately, when we let our desires or our impulses take control of our lives. And so as Mark says, this is in the preface, uh, page eight, controlling one's impulses takes on new importance because of the potential consequences. Just as somebody who's learned to drive a car must now control his or her impulses to make sure he doesn't drive into something or somebody. So all of us, as we're growing in maturity in Christ, and particularly young people as they're growing towards adulthood, must now learn to control their impulses. And the aim of this book is to help us get better at driving our way through life, piloting yourself through life, as Mark says. So that's the preface. The introduction now then summarises what the book of Proverbs contributes to this question. And the book of Proverbs is really where a lot of this discussion is focused in this book. Here's a quote. Proverbs is written to young men, brackets, and everyone else. You see, it's not just young men, but perhaps particularly them, to encourage and instruct them to become kings and not to remain slaves. Now, I think that's a very striking thought, and Mark emphasises this again and again, that a young person is a slave. A child is a slave. How is that so? Well, obviously, a child is a slave in the uh, sense that a child obeys the command of their parents when they're young. That means it's not bad for a young person to be a slave in the sense that you just follow the instructions of your mum and dad. In fact, the idea of slavery is used in Galatians 4 to describe um, Israel's relationship to God and their life in the world. But they're not slaves anymore, and a young person who's growing up is not a slave anymore. They have received 
the freedom of the glory of the sons of God. They've grown to maturity in Christ, just as a young person should have grown to maturity as an adult. Now, here's where the problem sets in, because all too often it's easy for young people to imagine that adult freedom means simply liberation from all restrictions. Here's a quote. A young child often sees adults as possessing an immense amount of freedom. They go to bed when they want, they drink alcohol when they want, they decide when to eat ice cream and how much, and they can get up as late as they like, and they can watch as many videos as they like. So, quote, a child's impression of adult freedom is something like being a child without adult supervision. And of course, for many people as they grow up, that's exactly what it's like. Many people are actually adult bodies, but childlike minds, and don't discipline themselves to behave like adults. And that's not the kind of maturity which Mark, following the book of Proverbs, is wanting to call us to. Rather, he's saying, actually, that's a form of slavery. To be an adult like that is just a new form of slavery, because instead of being enslaved, so to speak, to your parents, where you've got to do what they tell you to do, now you're simply enslaved to your desires. So you follow your desires, foolish and immature, wherever they may lead you. You're not free, actually, to live in the world because you're enslaved to whatever you're following. And if that's your foolish desires, then that's what you're a slave to. So here's the key to the book, really. The book of Proverbs is the solution to this because the book of Proverbs tells us how we may take control of our desires so that instead of being slaves to our desires, we are the masters of them. We are kings of them. And that's where he goes in chapter one, which is what we look at in the next video, picking up on that theme of how important it is that we should rule over our desires. We should control ourselves so that we're able to live a fruitful and disciplined and godly and mature life. Chapter one is even better than the introduction. I encourage you to grab a copy of this book, Solomon Says by Mark Horn. Let's read it together and I'll see you in a couple of days time. Bye for now. Hi everybody, welcome back, glad you could tune in again. We're continuing to make our way through this fantastic little book, Solomon Says. We're in chapter one now, and the title of chapter one is You Must Rule Yourself. Well, that just pretty much says it, doesn't it? Let's just dig into this and I'll share with you a few things that I found helpful from this. There's a cracking illustration on page two and page three, which I'm not going to share with you. I'm going to leave that for you to discover for yourself. It is absolutely brilliant. You have to read it about three times to realise what he's saying, but it is priceless because it illustrates perfectly the way in which it's all too easy for us not to, so to speak, be in control of our lives, even when we think we are. But really where we're going, page five, um, here is the money quote, if you like, um, which is even this is quoted on the back cover of the book here it is if you don't govern yourself you will be governed by others and your own impulses will be the reins they use to lead you that's such uh critical insight not just for understanding this book but for understanding the book of proverbs and for understanding its relationship to the book of genesis and many other parts of scripture talk about that in a second but let's just think about what this means if you don't control your desires and, so to speak, take control of your life in some meaningful way, then what actually will happen is that other people will be able to drag you wherever you want, and they will use your desires as, like, the shackles by which they lead you around. Mark gives some examples of this. Let's think, for example, about laziness. He quotes from Proverbs twelve twenty four: The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labour. Just think about what that means. Isn't it insightful? Um, 
if you're diligent, you will rule, you'll be able to take control of your life, and I guess in the ancient world, your farm or your business. But if you're slothful, if you're lazy, then you'll probably be able to sort of relax and lounge around for a few days or weeks or months. But eventually, you'll run out of food or money, or the people who are feeding you will run out of patience, and you will end up a slave. Forced labour. You're you will end up having to work for a pittance for somebody else because you didn't discipline yourself and work for yourself. That's certainly how it worked in the ancient world, and we certainly see parallels to that in the modern world. It might not be slavery, but you can see how the analogy would work. You see what's happened. The slothful desires of the sluggard have become the chains by which that man or woman is bound by his new master, and he is made a slave. Again, one example. Another example. Words. Mark picks up on the significance of what we say in the book of Proverbs and makes some very insightful points about it. Our words can ensnare and trap us and get us into all kinds of trouble. For example, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. If we don't control our desire to speak, then what's going to happen is we're going to get ourselves into trouble, in this case with the living God. When words are many, transgression is lacking, is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is prudent. That is, whoever is able to control his desire to blurt out whatever he's thinking is prudent and wise. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble, Proverbs twenty one twenty three. Well, isn't that just the, the truth? We mouth off and say something foolish and rash and, and hasty and suddenly find ourselves in trouble. Indeed, a fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. Just think of the trouble it's possible to get yourself in by mouthing off when you should remain silent. If we control our desires, we'll be free. If we don't control our desires, in this case to speak, we will end up bound and in chains to other people or beaten up on the sidewalk somewhere. Proverbs eighteen six. Now... The background to this is in the doctrine of creation. Genesis one twenty six to 28 uh, is the so-called creation mandate. And in it, God uh, gives to Adam and Eve, man and woman, not just the woman, the responsibility to have dominion and to rule over the creation, to fill it and sub to subdue it and to uh, rule over it, in effect, in a way that glorifies God. And here's how Mark summarizes that statement. Um, in this uh, text, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, quote, points to the fact that every descendant of Adam and Eve is called to rule over a portion of creation. Here's the key insight. Including himself. Perhaps even especially himself. The call to Adam and Eve is a call to all of us to be kings and queens. Just think about that. We often think of the creation mandate, don't we, in terms of our vocation in the world or perhaps our desires to see the nations and the societies in which we live acknowledge the Lordship of Christ and start shaping their public life in a way which reflects the gospel and the law of God. Well, right, yes, good, true, but we've forgotten the most basic thing. Adam, as you go out subduing the world, remember that you are a part of the world and you must subdue yourself. And not allow your desires to rule over you. You must rule over them. So again, uh, on page seven, it turns out that the uh, call to rule and control our desires is a deeply Christian imperative. One more example that um, Mark 
uh, highlights here is the example of marriage. This is fascinating. Mark points out that when a man and woman get married, I'm quoting now, they promise themselves to each other. The bridegroom offers his self to the bride and vice versa. The assumption is that they are each in a position to actually give what they promise. But how often is that completely true? We might be free to marry somebody, but if you are not, so to speak, in possession of yourself, if you're not in control of your desires, you don't have yourself. You, you, you aren't able to give yourself to somebody else if you don't possess your own life. And if you're ruled and con controlled by instincts which you're unable to govern, you can't give yourself to somebody else. And in a very practical way, that means you're not ready for marriage. And Mark points this out. When you officially give yourself to a woman in marriage, he's talking to men specifically, quote, you need to be free of habits and vices that would hamper your ability to offer yourself to your bride as a beneficial husband. And you can easily think, can't you, of all kinds of ungodly habits that would mean when you give yourself to your bride, you're actually unable to give yourself to your bride because you won't be... Uh, your actions won't be shaped by what's best for her. Your actions will be shaped by what your impulses and desires want. So you start to see this is not, obviously, this is not just for 16-year-old boys thinking about getting married in the next five to ten years. This is for every Christian man and woman and child, married or not, to think about the significance of that particular relationship as well as others. Fantastic stuff there in chapter one. I'll show you some things from chapter two in a couple of days' time. In the meanwhile, get a hold of Solomon Says by Mark Horn. God bless. Hope to see you very soon. Bye for now. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. We're continuing to work our way through this great little book, Solomon Says by Mark Horn. Encourage you to consider getting hold of a copy if you've not done so already. And today we're in chapter three, which is entitled The Dereliction of Dominion. We might say, what happens when people start to abandon or turn away somewhat from different aspects of the calling that we have to take dominion over the world, beginning by taking dominion over ourselves and learning to control our own desires. What uh, Mark does here is actually quite fascinating. He, he picks on uh, four distinct areas of life, which I want to come to in a second, and he, each one is quite a nuanced discussion about how uh, indulging in a particular area can be good or how it can be bad. And we actually need a thoughtful and nuanced and wise way of, wise way of uh, dealing with those questions. Not every question has a simple yes, no, black or white answer. And wisdom, the wisdom of the book of Proverbs helps us with that. But before we get to those four specific areas, fascinating just opening section, page 34, Mark points out that we don't get adult responsibilities all at once as we're growing up. Young men, young women, you are maybe 15, 16 years old. You don't have full adult responsibilities yet, but you're growing into them. And what that means is that it's crucially important that you use those years to get ready for the responsibilities that are heading your way. You should, so to speak, be living for the future, something that Marx can come to in a later chapter, preparing for your future self. And the same thing applies actually to adults. We are all in the process of becoming what we will be next year. 
or in five years time or in 10 years time. And so it's never too early and it's never too late to start disciplining ourselves, learning new habits and getting rid of bad old ones in order to become more mature and faithful and wise in Christ. So that's the opening section. Now, these four areas of life that Mark discusses, each of them require a thoughtful, careful, nuanced um, uh, analysis, if you like, to work out whether they're good or whether they're bad, because it turns out that it's not just a simple yes or no. Sleep, alcohol, leisure and risk are four areas of life which are unavoidable um, and which it's not possible to say it's good or it's bad. We need a thoughtful, nuanced reflection on each of those things. Any one of them, too much in the wrong place or too little in the wrong place, will catastrophically undermine our ability to take control of our own lives and to fulfill God's call to fill and subdue the earth and take dominion over it and to spread the gospel of Christ in his name. We won't be able to do it if we have too much of those things. But yet at the same time, scripture encourages us to embrace those things as good blessings from him. And so one of the great uh, profitable things in this chapter is just to think about each of those things in a practical personal way and just think okay uh, what should I be thinking about uh, sleep or my alcohol consumption or um, the amount of leisure time I have or the risks I take let me say just a couple of words about the last two of those leisure and risk Mark points out that with the um, increasing prosperity of our age, certainly compared to previous generations or two or three generations ago, there are new temptations for us, and perhaps particularly for younger people. Younger people, uh, and all of us, I guess in a sense, have the possibility of spending more time on leisure pursuits, maybe involving alcohol or just sleeping or whatever, uh, or sports or whatever, hobbies, whatever it is we like doing. You can spend more time on those things and the roof doesn't immediately fall off the house and you don't immediately start starving. Because our uh, comparative prosperity has given us new temptations one of, the thi- one of the things that we really need to work on as a, as a society is not just to swallow new technological advances and, and the prosperity that, by God's grace, we have without thinking how could it provide us with new temptations that we'd need to resist. Prosperity is one of those uh, sources of potential temptation. It's possible for people to be lazy in the 21st century and not be dead in six months from starvation. It just wasn't possible for most people to be like that hundreds of years ago, and it is now. It's a very fruitful thing to think about. Finally, a little thought on risk. I didn't expect to find this in a book of this kind, but it's just fascinating. Where are we? Uh, Yeah, page 45. Mark points out that within the book of Proverbs itself, you've got seemingly opposing attitudes to risk. Some texts suggesting we should embrace risk and other texts suggesting we should avoid it. For example, chapter 27, verse 12, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple will go on and suffer for it. So the prudent man wouldn't be taking any risks because that's dangerous. On the other hand, chapter 28, verse 1, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The contrast there, what you've got is somebody who's too cautious, fleeing when nobody pursues, and that's a wicked thing to do. So what that means is, again, just as with alcohol consumption and sleep and leisure time and hobbies and dealing with our prosperity and everything else, one of the things we need to think about is, well, what kinds of risks are appropriate? 
And there's no simple uh, black and white yes, no answer to many of the questions we'll find ourselves in. What we need is wisdom to reflect prayerfully and thoughtfully on the kinds of situations that we find ourselves in, in the company of uh, the book of Proverbs and Solomon's wisdom that's contained therein, so that our minds can be informed, so that once we've decided, yes, I'm going to discipline myself, I'm going to take control of my desires, we're then in a position to work out what's the direction I ought to be leading my life in by the grace of God and in the power of his spirit. Fantastic stuff in that chapter. As I said, do consider getting a hold of this book. It's on Amazon. You can get it from the publisher, Athanasius Press. I'm loving it. Solomon says by Mark Horn. God bless you. Look forward to seeing you by God's grace very soon. Bye for now. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. We're continuing our journey through this great little book, Solomon Says by Mark Horn. We're getting to chapter two today. This book just gets better and better. This chapter is called The Genesis of Adulthood. Let me share with you a few thoughts about it. The title of the chapter itself is kind of pointing in two directions at once. Genesis in the sense of origins, which is what the word means. This is the chapter about where adulthood comes from, where we must search to find its origins. And of course, it's a hint at the book of Genesis, the scriptural book of Genesis, which, as I've mentioned a few times in previous videos, is has close thematic and theological and pastoral ties with the book of Proverbs. Proverbs and Genesis are closely related books. And this book, Mark's book, is all about Proverbs. But in order to understand Proverbs, then we need to understand a bit about Genesis. Let's just think about that connection for a minute or two. Mark points out one obvious connection, and this is really fascinating to think about. You remember back in the book of Genesis, there are two trees in the garden in Genesis chapter 2. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, Adam and Eve were not so supposed to eat at that stage of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were supposed to eat of the tree of life. Well, um, Proverbs chapter 3, uh, verse 18, says wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold on her. So you can imagine yourself bringing these two themes together and thinking, okay, in, in due time, Adam and Eve were supposed to eat of the tree of life. Well, how do we lay hold of the tree of life now? Ah, Proverbs tells us. It tells us that we lay hold of wisdom in order to lay hold of the tree of life. And of course, the book of Proverbs tells us how that wisdom is to be acquired. So that's one connection. The other connection, uh, which is really, really uh, uh, obvious once you start to think about it, uh, because Proverbs is such a practical book, goes back to the so-called creation mandate, or sometimes called the dominion mandate. That's what Mark calls it sometimes in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. God blessed them, said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it and so on. And so what's going on in uh, Proverbs is Proverbs is telling us how to accomplish that. And remember in uh, a previous video, I mentioned that one of the things, perhaps the most important thing that we must rule over is ourselves. We can't rule the creation without first ruling our own desires. Okay, so where does this chapter take those ideas? Well, Mark points out that both in Genesis and in the book of Proverbs, two key themes emerge as areas in which we need to uh, pursue this dominion over the creation. And those two themes are marriage and work. We need marriage, obviously, to fill the world. No one person, male or female, can do that on their own. And we need work in order to subdue the world, to subdue things outside of ourselves. We need to work in the world. And so it's no accident then, given the connections between Proverbs and Genesis and the creation narrative in particular, that the book of Proverbs should be filled 
especially in the opening few chapters, with um, wisdom about marriage and with wisdom about work. So think, for example, Proverbs chapter five, the warning against adultery. That's an exhortation from the wise father to the growing son to pursue uh, marriage with a faithful woman rather than just pursuing your own selfish and foolish and fleeting desires for that kind of gratification without the commitment of marriage. Uh, Similarly, work. Uh, We're to pursue hard work and not to follow our own desires into laziness and sloth and so on. There's a great couple of sections um, uh, in page 23, 24 um, about the the perversion of work where uh, it becomes dishonest. And instead of working hard to create wealth to support yourself, rather like Paul says in uh, in his letters to the Thessalonians, instead we're working hard to try and find ways of stealing other people's wealth. So that's how um, work can be twisted. Of course, work can also be twisted by just not doing any of it. Another way that things can go wrong. Uh, the chapter unfolds. There's a long quotation towards the end from uh, Christian philosopher and theologian Cornelius Van Til, which is it's dense, but it's worth looking at page 29 through 31. Really worth exploring that. One of the things that Van Til is, is highlighting is that the mission given to humanity to transform the world is also a mandate for humans themselves to be transformed more into God's likeness. Again, relates to what we were talking about previously. We have no hope at all of subduing the world unless we have subdued our own desires, which means growing in Christ likeness and godliness. So there's all that stuff in that chapter. I encourage you once again consider getting a hold of this great book and let's read it together and i'm sure men women old and young will find many many helpful things uh, for us in uh, terms of growing in our relationship with christ and seeking to serve him more faithfully okay god bless you all be praying for you and um, hope by uh, god's grace to see you all very soon bye for now Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. We're looking today at Mark Horne's great little book, Solomon Says. We're in chapter four, which is called Fighting for the Future. Let me summarize the message of this chapter for you as he does in the very first sentence. Quote, wisdom is intimately related to preparing for the future or future possibilities in the present. In other words, a wise person recognizes that there is a huge amount that he or she does not know about the world particularly about future events. And a wise person will ensure that they take account of those uncertain future possibilities in shaping their present actions. Contrast that to what a foolish person would do. To pick up some of the ideas from previous chapters, a foolish person will be led simply by their present desires. Whatever they want to do right now, that will shape their actions right now. If they feel like having the day off and going to sleep, well, they'll just do that. If they feel like blowing $2,000 on an expensive suit and a couple of fancy meals out, well, they'll just do that. Rather than thinking what will be the long-term consequences or what may be the long-term consequences of those actions. Now, Mark develops this theme in a number of different ways. He highlights a couple of parables of Jesus which draw attention to it. For example, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins in Matthew 25, or the parable of the two builders in Matthew 7. In both cases, he says, quote, the wise were the ones who planned for future contingencies. Notice it's not that the wise were the ones who had some supernatural knowledge of the future, which others didn't have. The wise were 
no more knowledgeable about the future than the foolish characters in those parables. What made the difference was that they thought carefully about what they didn't know, and they acted on that basis. It's partly for that reason, I think, that Mark links this uh, character trait with the sin of sloth or laziness. The reason it works is something like this. Not to plan for the future is a form of laziness. Whereas planning for the future is jolly hard work. Anybody who's ever done it, perhaps in business or in working out how much you can afford for a home extension or for a new car or to spend on a bunch of evenings out or budgeting for your year. How much can I spend on food? How much can I spend on this, that and the other? Anybody who's ever bothered to think about future planning knows it's much more difficult to sit down with a piece of paper and a pen or a spreadsheet and actually write a budget than it is just to have a kind of cheerful, naive assumption that, oh, maybe I'll get a 20% pay rise next year and it'll all be okay. And so sloth can take the form of mental laziness, the refusal to actually think carefully about the future. Now, it's clear then that this is one of the skills, uh, the, the traits of wisdom that a young person needs to learn as they grow up. And a thought occurs to me here that Mark doesn't develop at this point, but which might be worth our while thinking about. Uh, one of the things that we do as parents is that we shield our children from the negative consequences of decisions that they've made which have turned out badly. And that's entirely right. When our children get into a bit of a pickle when they're six or seven or eight or ten years old, obviously we want to protect them from some of the negative consequences of what they've done. However, it's worth thinking about the likely consequences of that if we keep doing it. If we continually protect our children as they're growing up 12, 14, 16, 18, from the negative consequences of foolish decisions they may have made, we'll be teaching them that not thinking about the future doesn't really have any consequences because, hey, mum or dad will clear up the mess or dad will foot the bill. You get to a point where you gradually want progressively to expose your own children to some of the negative consequences of some of the foolish decisions they may make. It's not the case, I don't think, that we should punish them for getting things wrong. Uh, Mark actually points this out um, uh, on page 50. God doesn't condemn people for not guessing correctly. What God condemns, if you like, are not mistakes about the future. They are refusals to think about the future. Refusals to plan for the future. Refusals to uh, thoughtfully take account of what might happen in the future when shaping our present actions. That also is a distinction uh, we um, should be aware of. I don't think it's right for us to uh, be too hard on our kids as they're growing up when something happens that they couldn't have foreseen. But when something happens that they should have foreseen, or they should have foreseen something like it, maybe we can help them by gradually exposing them to the challenge of, well, you've got to clear this mess up now. Because that's what they're going to have to do when they're adults. Much of the rest of the chapter uh, is actually occupied with the theme of debt. And it won't surprise you, of course, because one of the chief ways in which we can act foolishly in the present, uh, in terms of causing bad consequences for ourselves in the future, is in relation to money. If you lend money to somebody, then you're exposing yourself to risk. And if you borrow money from somebody, you're exposing yourself to risk. And the book of Proverbs highlights both these themes. That doesn't, of course, mean that it's always wrong to borrow and it's always wrong to lend. Of course it doesn't. 
There are circumstances in which borrowing or lending may be a good investment for you, may be helpful for somebody else, may be an entirely wise thing to do. But the crucial point is that we need to think about what those circumstances are. We need to figure out whether, is this a sustainable loan that I'm taking out? Or do I just need to not spend so much and live more frugally? Or is this a wise loan that I'm making? Uh, is this a good investment or is this just looks too good to be true or the guy's never going to be able to pay me back and I'm going to end up having thought I've lent him the money and basically I've kissed it goodbye. So all these things are highlighted in this chapter. Another great read, very, very practical, fighting for the future. Chapter four of this great little book, Solomon says, I encourage you to get hold of a copy if you've not already done so. Let's read it together and I look forward to seeing you in the next video. Lord willing, God bless. Bye for now. Hi everybody, welcome back, glad you could tune in again. We're still working our way through this great book, Solomon Says by Mark Horn. We're getting today to chapter five. I want to say a few words about this chapter, which is entitled, Immorality Impoverishes You. And this chapter is focused particularly on the next big topic you might think that is unavoidable for us if we're wanting to be faithful, godly Christians growing towards maturity in Christ. And particularly it's unavoidable. We certainly shouldn't want to try and avoid it if we're wanting to help young people grow into godly, wise, mature, stable, faithful Christian adults. It's the issue of sexual faithfulness and sexual morality. This is... One of the best things, I think it might be the best thing I've read, certainly of this length on this subject ever. It's about 12, 13, 14 pages. Let me put it to you like this. Mark Horn, fathers, Mark Horn is the kind of man you want sitting down for a dozen pages or so with your son just to lay a few things on the line. Mothers, same thing for your daughters. This is the sort of thing which it's good for young people to read. It's not graphic or salacious, but neither does it hold back from practical issues of sexual faithfulness and sexual morality and immorality. It's biblically grounded, it's wise, it's judicious, it's measured, uh, and it's just great to prompt us to think and reflect on how this overall issue of learning to control our desires, particularly our strongest desires, and it's hard to think of many desires stronger than this one, is it? How the issue of controlling our desires is part of the, uh, the stuff, if you like, of growing in faithfulness to Christ as we're growing in maturity in him. I don't really want to say much more about that chapter itself. What I want to do is just spend a minute or two sharing with you something that um, uh, occurred to me a while ago, which is related to something at one point that Mark Horn mentions. In passing, he mentions the character of Joseph. And Joseph is a remarkable figure because of his... Uh, exemplary sexual faithfulness. And this really stands out if you think about the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, in which of course Joseph makes his appearance, could be read from one perspective as a narrative of all of the ways in which a relationship between a husband and a wife, or a man and a woman, could go wrong, or a narrative of all the ways in which sexual intimacy can be abused sinfully. Think of all the different ways in the book of Genesis that this great gift is abused. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam refuses to protect his wife whom he's charged to care for. Lamech in chapter 4, who commits polygamy and then is boastful, posturing about his physical violence when he's talking to his wives. The sons of God and the daughters of men in chapter 6, 
Think of Canaan, uh, the son of Noah, and his somewhat salacious or voyeuristic attitude when he finds his father naked in the tent. Um, chapter 12, Abraham uh, lying to Pharaoh about his wife, Sarah, and uh, effectively giving away his wife to her in fear for his life. Um, Abraham took Sarah as a mistress in chapter 16. Then you've got Abraham and Abimelech. Abraham repeats the mistake uh, with Pharaoh again in chapter 20 when he's with Abimelech. Isaac repeats the mistake in chapter 26. Elsewhere, you've got uh, refusal to uh, properly obey the uh, requirements of leveret marriage, which are spelled out later in Scripture, of course, in Genesis 38, you've got polygamy, you've got rape, you've got incest, homosexual conduct, you've got fornication, you've got people having mistresses or concubines. In the book of Genesis, the whole narrative is filled with every conceivable kind of sexual misbehavior. And then you get to Joseph, who dominates the landscape of the last 30% of the book or so, from about chapter 37 onwards. And he meets his test in chapter 39, when, of course, uh, he is confronted by Potiphar's wife, who tries to seduce him into committing adultery with her. This is the kind of situation which is addressed in the book of Proverbs, among other situations. What's Joseph going to do at this moment of his test? Well, if you look at his forefathers, look at everyone who's gone before him, how, how do the ancestors of Joseph fare in controlling this impulse, this desire which is within them? Pretty badly. Pretty badly. But what does Joseph do? Joseph refuses. Joseph is a faithful man. Joseph controls this strong urge within him and refuses. It costs him. It costs him immensely. But look at what happens later in Joseph's life. As a consequence, in God's good providence, of Joseph's self-control and self-discipline, he is the one through whom the uh, children and families of his 11 brothers and his father are saved, as the remaining chapters of the book unfold. He is the one who is exalted to a position of preeminence in the land. He is the one through whom the Lord provides for Abraham's offspring and sets the stage for the whole of the rest of biblical history. Just think about what that means. The whole family of Adam is depicted in Genesis as sexually immoral. And the family is headed downhill in this tailspin of ungodliness until you get to a man who can control those desires. And it's through that man that the living God chooses to secure and preserve his people and put them on the road to the next stage of his history of dealing with them. That's how important this issue is. And so I encourage you, get hold of a copy of this book if you've not yet done so. Get one for your sons, get one for your daughters, get one for yourself. Let's look at it, let's read it, let's take seriously what it says. Thank you, Lord, for Mark Horn and all the work he's put into it. And let's uh, do this uh, business together of learning to grow in faithfulness and maturity in Christ. We'll carry on with the next chapter in the next meditation, next devotion. But until then, bye for now. God bless. See you next time. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. We're still making our way through this great little book, Mark Horn's Solomon Says. And we're coming now to another subject which falls under this general heading of the value of learning to discipline and control, rule over our own desires as a way of fulfilling the mandate that God has given us to rule and take dominion over all creation. We come today to the subject of how we speak, 
how we use words. Well, the first thing you notice about this topic, um, which is particularly striking given that uh, Mark has addressed this book primarily to young men who are growing up, although of course it's relevant to others as well. The first thing you notice, which is really intriguing, there are two chapters entitled Keeping Your Tongue Sheathed, part one and part two. There's probably a message there about the importance of this issue. Of course, this is an issue which is picked up elsewhere in Scripture, and perhaps most notably in the New Testament book of James. I've spoken already previously about how there are connections between the book of Proverbs and the book of Genesis. Well, there are very clear connections between the book of uh, Proverbs and the book of James, particularly uh, in terms of what both books say about the tongue. And if you read James chapter 3, for example, and then you look at some of the stuff in the chapters uh, in this book, you'll see lots and lots of parallels, some of which Mark draws attention to. Just a few little uh, glimpses into this chapter, really quite intriguing. Um, At one point, for example, he mentions... Uh, the, the significance of sitcoms on TV uh, as formative influences in how we speak to one another. And I was reading this thinking, where is he going with this? Well, he points out that when you uh, watch a sitcom, what basically happens is that uh, somebody encounters a situation in which he says something which looks like it's an off-the-cuff remark, which is witty or perhaps a sort of slightly cutting, put-down, kind of amusing for everybody else apart from the, whoever is the butt of the joke or whatever it is. And what's happening here is something very subtle. We are being trained in how to speak, but we are being trained in a very negative way. We are learning from watching sitcoms that the right way to speak, the admirable way to speak, the way that the heroes of the narrative speak, are with these quick, immediate, witty one-liners, which of course is a million miles away from the wise, thoughtful, considered speech that the book of Proverbs and the rest of Scripture commends. He's not saying, and I'm not suggesting, that sitcoms are all bad, but it's just worth thinking, isn't it, what kind of influence uh, sitcoms and other forms of entertainment have sort of subconsciously on on us in terms of forming how we uh, live in the world, how we speak, what kind of uh, temperament we aspire to. Um, Of course, on the the same kind of subject, um, Mark has a fair amount to to say about how quickly we respond in other situations. Um, One of the things that stands out in many uh, conversations among Christians, which is one of the real tragedies of many conversations among Christians, is that uh, often people speak very quickly when their emotions are running high, where there's anger or, or frustration. That's precisely the point, of course, at which the book of Proverbs says we ought not to speak. And the book of James echoes that sentiment. When you're feeling frustrated or irritated with somebody, that's the very last moment at which it's a good idea to give vent to ill-considered thoughts. Of course, there are circumstances in which it's appropriate to respond in those situations, but it's very easy to let your words get away from you, so to speak, and end up saying things you didn't mean to say or shouldn't have said, and, well, what's happened then? You're no longer ruling your desires, but you're being ruled by them. Finally, a few pages later in the second of these two chapters on the tongue, uh, Mark draws attention to the art of listening well. Of course, the book of James and the book of Proverbs do this. Um, Wisdom, you see, wisdom is not simply about knowing all the answers. 
so often in our culture we prize people who know all the answers or seem to have an answer to every question. That's actually not how the book of Proverbs depicts wisdom at all. The wise of heart are those who receive commandments. Listen and take on board what the other people have to say. The wise of heart, Proverbs 19 verse 20, are those who listen to advice and accept instruction. Wisdom, then, isn't about having all the answers and being the first to blurt them out. Wisdom is perhaps about asking the right questions or being the one who is most disposed to think carefully about what's being said by others. Mark even makes the point that that's a large part of what good leadership is. It's about listening to the people whom you're charged with the responsibility of leading. One of many responsibilities that young men and all of us ought to be growing more into. So some fantastic stuff in here about how we speak. Once again, I encourage you to grab a hold of this book if you've not done so already. Let's read it together and we'll have a look at the next chapter or two in the next couple of videos. God bless. Bye for now. Hi everybody, welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. We're looking today at chapter 8 of this great little book by Mark Horn. Solomon says, let's get straight into it. In this chapter, Mark addresses a question which often arises as people seek to try and take on board the wisdom of the book of Proverbs and the wisdom of uh, the kinds of things that Mark is talking about here. Because what they're expecting is as they do the, the kinds of things that Mark has been talking about, their life will become more smooth. Things will go better for them. They will be more fruitful and prosperous in their work and in their relationships. And very often that is the case and that is wonderful, but it is not always the case. So the question Mark addresses in this chapter is this, what should we do and how should we approach situations when we've been striving to live with wisdom and integrity and godliness and maturity in the kinds of ways that uh, Solomon talks about and that Mark is talking about in this book. And our lives haven't got smoother and more straightforward and easier. They've got more complicated and more difficult, and they now contain more suffering and hardship than they did previously. Does this mean that the message of the book of Proverbs is somehow failed, or does it mean that we've done something to deserve this? How should we think about these kinds of issues? Well, first up, it does not mean that you've done something to deserve it. That's something we've talked about before. On every occasion when Jesus had an opportunity to address the question of whether somebody's suffering was a direct result of their sin, he said it wasn't. He encouraged everybody to repent and put their trust in him, but he did not say that suffering whenever it happens is a result of that person's sin. And neither is it the case that the message of the book of Proverbs has failed a lot of people have this idea about the book of Proverbs, as Mark points out, which is based largely on over-reading one small part of chapter 3, the first 10 verses of chapter 3. The idea that the book of Proverbs basically says, if you're wise, then your life will be prosperous. And it's true that, generally speaking, wisdom leads to a more fruitful life, and folly leads to a messed up and ruined life. But it's not always the case that the people who are wise are the people who do best in the world. And it's certainly not even the case that the book of Proverbs, never mind the rest of the Bible, says that. So what wisdom, then, does the book of Proverbs have, and does the scripture have generally that might help to guide us through these kinds of situations? Well, three things we might think about. First, Proverbs reminds us, and Mark reminds us in this book, that all of our lives are lived under God's sovereign providence. They're all lived, so to speak, in his hand. He's got the whole world in his hand. And very often, in adversity and hardship, 
the Lord is actively at work teaching us something in order to make us more wise. It's not that somehow uh, we've tried to be wise and wise and oh, we've not been wise enough. And now God is laying into us to punish us for our wrongdoing. It's rather that the hardships that we may be experiencing, maybe God's way of making us more wise, they're certainly under God's sovereign control. And there's actually a limit to how much we can control our lives. Anyway, consider what the book of Proverbs says. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps and so on. In other words, these Proverbs indicate that however much we might plan, and it's a good idea to plan, it doesn't follow from that that everything will necessarily automatically go more smoothly for us just because we do. Of course, as Mark highlights, it is definitely the case that wisdom is better than folly. If our lives are not taking the kind of course that we had hoped in one way or another, it's still better to be wise in dealing with those situations than to be foolish in dealing with those situations. But those situations themselves are always under the sovereign hand of God. Second thing, uh, uh, Mark draws attention to uh, what the book of Proverbs, along with the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of James, teach about the character of life more broadly. All three of those books use a similar metaphor to describe how uh, life is, and Ecclesiastes most famously, that life is uh, like mist or like vapour or like wind. It's hard to grasp. It's hard to get a handle on. It's hard to control. Often the term is translated in the book of Ecclesiastes as meaningless or vanity. But the idea really is um, life is like mist in the sense that you can't control what happens to you. James actually captures this wonderfully in James chapter four. Um, what is your life? James says, in response to people who have great plans for their future. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So there is then that caution to be, what would you say, humble and cautious in the boldness and dogmatism with which we pronounce our great plans for the future. And that itself is part of the wisdom that the Lord is teaching us in circumstances like that. Finally, there's a great section towards the end of this chapter on the subject of contentment. Contentment is scripture's answer to the question, how should we handle situations when our material uh, need, uh, material blessings, the material possessions may go up and down. The answer is contentment, not envy. And Mark has a great couple of pages on this. He quotes from the book of Proverbs 14, verse 30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. And there's a couple of paragraphs alluding to the danger of financial get-rich-quick schemes with um, some uh, warnings from the book of uh, Proverbs about that roughly translated. They say, if it seems too good to be true, it is. Uh, finally, uh, he points out that actually contentment is the way to pursue long term goals. Paradoxically, contentment does not mean, hey, whatever, I'm not going to have any ambitions for the future because it turns out I've tried to live wisely and it didn't work. No, no. Contentment means that you'll be content in the 
more trying circumstances that you're now in, but you'll still be willing to strive to grow in wisdom and maturity and to build whatever project it is you're working on, which isn't going as smoothly as you thought. If you just launched a new business, you thought it would take six months and it's now into its third year and you haven't sold a single product. Well, contentment will keep you plugging away at it, even in those dark times when there doesn't seem to be much fruit coming from that enterprise. So there are some fruitful, I think, and helpful things from that chapter as you're making your way through this book. I encourage you, as I've said before, grab a copy if you've not got one and let's look at it together. And I'll see you again in the next video. Bye for now. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Glad you could tune in again. Well, we made it. We got to the end of this book, Mark Horn's Solomon Says. I want to share a few thoughts with you about chapter nine and about the epilogue that follows immediately after it. Uh, this one really shocked me. Uh, in particular, there's a quotation on the opening page of the chapter from the Baptist preacher and theologian Charles Spurgeon. I want to read this to you and uh, say a word or two about it. Here's how it goes. Alas, much has been done of late to promote the production of dwarfish Christians. Poor, sickly believers turn the church into a hospital rather than an army. And that really puzzled me because I would have thought that the image of the church as a hospital is actually a profoundly biblical one. Isn't it true that the church is a place where sick people go to be healed, so to speak, where spiritually sick people like us go to have our sins forgiven, go to have our lives set back on the path towards wisdom and righteousness? Isn't Actually, isn't that what this whole book's about? That uh, To highlight that the church is a place where we learn to live with fruitfulness and integrity. It's a hospital for people whose lives aren't perfect. It's not like a, a display cabinet in the corner of a trophy room for people who've got everything already sorted out. So what's Spurgeon doing criticising this image of the church as a hospital? Well, it becomes clear as the chapter unfolds. Uh, he's not at all criticising the idea of the church as a place for sick sinners. He's criticising the idea that the church is a place where people go with no aspiration to get better. That would be a terrible hospital, wouldn't it? That's not a place where you'd want to go to be healed if nobody in there had any aspiration to make you well. In other words, the point of this chapter is to revisit once more the overall theme of this book, which is to do with how we may strive to grow in faithfulness and Christlikeness. The chapter of the book is training your hands for war and training is the particular image which dominates this chapter it comes actually from psalm 144 which is quoted uh, on the opening page blessed be the lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle and this chapter contains some really fascinating and helpful stuff about how we may be trained page 125 godliness can be trained and it should be trained and there are some uh, sections in here quoting from various parts of the new testament in particular highlighting the significance of training as an image by which 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 serves in biblical terms to describe how we grow in godliness notice there's a difference between training and learning learning has to do with study and books and meditation which are valuable and have their place but training is something somewhat different. And uh, Mark actually picks up on the significance of this at some length. Training is to do with 
what we do in the world, how we live, is physical rather than just mental. Imagine an illustration. If you heard that a friend of yours was training for the Olympics or training for a boxing match, you would not imagine them sitting around reading books on boxing or sitting around reading about the theory of sprinting. They would be out on the running track. They'd be in the gym lifting weights and punching punch bags because that's how you train. Training has to do with what we do, not merely with what we think. And there are some, like I said, there are some very helpful practical things uh, in here. This uh, idea of... Um, training as something that we do is a profoundly biblical one. It's actually um, part of our confessional standards as well, along with the biblical texts highlighting this idea. Um, Mark draws attention to the Westminster Confession, which is part of our own church's doctrinal standards, which highlights this interplay between God's work in us and our work as we seek to, so to speak, work out what he is doing in us. Uh, the confession says, we're on page 131, our ability to do good works is not at all from ourselves, but wholly from the Spirit of God. Profoundly biblical thought. We're not saved or made uh, faithful in any sense by our own strength. And yet at the same time, quote, believers are not to grow negligent, but they ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of God that is in them. The way that works theologically is something which I'm sure you've thought about before, but is worth exploring again. It is precisely as God works in us to stir up new desires and to stir up new actions that he is graciously training us in the godliness that he wants from us. God doesn't just sort of zap us so that all the things that he wants from us become instinctive and second nature and we don't have to work at them. No, he creates in us fresh desires which we ourselves are called to cultivate and train in ourselves so that we grow more Christ-like. We don't magically become more Christ-like. Um, the uh, practical implications of that are fleshed out uh, a little bit later uh, in a few subsequent pages, still on page uh, 131 to begin with. Um, Mark suggests, be diligent in finding people who will be a good example to you. Be diligent in planning your day so that you actually know what it is you're trying to accomplish rather than just drifting through your day without any particular idea of what you're trying to gain. And then, um, again, towards the end of the chapter, there's a uh, fascinating little section about the value of training in the small stuff, is what the heading says. Now, this is really intriguing because uh, Mark points out that unlike with, let's say, a boxing match or training for sprinting in the Olympics, there's no such thing as practice. We don't get opportunities to sort of practice godliness in a, a safe environment where there are no actual human beings involved. We're always involved and almost always there's somebody else involved as well. But there are opportunities in little ways to practice godliness. And these are not to be despised. Uh, quite the contrary. Mark highlights that King David himself learned his diligence and his steadfastness and his strength of character not by being a king, but by being a shepherd boy and looking after lambs and sheep and so on. And we shouldn't despise those opportunities. Training in the small stuff is the thing which the living God will see. And in his time, he may deem it appropriate for us to be uh, taken into um, what uh, Mark describes as more important matters. Not that the little things aren't important, but there are other more significant things. One final thought from the epilogue. Quote, there is a saying commonly referred to as an old Chinese proverb. I'm not sure whether it is an old Chinese proverb. 
that the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. Which is a shame, isn't it, if you needed a tree. And the second best time is today. Well, there we are. That's one final encouragement to leave you with. There may be things in this book that have highlight, been highlighted to you where you think, you know, I wish I'd learned that 20 years ago. There have been things that I thought, I wish somebody had said that to me 20 years ago. Well, somebody said them to you today. And so there is no time like the present to get started. Pick up a copy of this book. Let's start thinking through and working through some of the ideas in it as we seek to grow in wisdom. Thanks, Mark. Great job. Lord bless you. And the Lord bless you. Look forward to seeing you soon, Lord willing. Bye for now. <laughs>